Any first novel that is written in the first person is automatically stamped as autobiographical. Of course, critics leave room for the possibility that some of the narrative has its seed in the author's imagination. But generally speaking, I think it's safe to say that the literary world does not expect to observe and may not even be prepared to deal with too much exercise of the imagination from a first novelist. For several reasons, this automatic labeling process is an unfortunate circumstance. It discourages the writer himself from, by suggesting that he has merely taken the re remembered bits of his life and changed the places and places and names. Also, the process probably forces the new novelist to be into accepting this seeming limitation on his abilities that he should not stretch out into new imaginative fields but instead should concentrate on fictionalizing his remembered experiences. And finally, this automatic stamping process filters down, I think, to the reader, who, like the critic, becomes accustomed to expect only so much from the first novelist. This should not be the case. There have been many very fine first novels written, and in some cases, the author has not been able to surpass his initial achievement. But usually, the first novelist has little opportunity to defend himself. Since I have this opportunity, I am going to talk about <clears throat> and read from my own first book, My Main Mother. Basically, I want to deal with scenes that ordinarily would be called autobiographical, but are, in fact, not. Hopefully, the value of this discussion is to suggest to readers and critics that there is more stuff in a first novel than meets the eye to urge first novelists to be that they should not be intimidated by the critics shortchanging the novelist's imaginative achievement, and finally, to shed some light on the creative process itself. I have never been seasick in my life, but there is a scene in My Main Mother describing the main character's battle with seasickness. In this chapter, Mitchell Mibbs, his mother, and Carl, the white boat owner, are together. Mitchell describes the action. <clears throat> I watched their wake widen, and the cruiser struck out farther and farther. It was getting smaller and smaller. Suddenly, our sloop started rocking, pitching. I looked astern. Mother was at the helm, and she was holding it with one hand, was bending over starboard, trying to pour herself another drink. Carl was advancing toward her. I turned to the bow so I could go below deck through the forward hatch, but was jerked portside fell to my knees, grabbed onto the wire rigging, burned my hands, yet felt safe, even lying on my stomach, until I looked down. When I looked at the water splashing inches from my face, it was bad enough. But then that nasty-tasting salt water flew off my nostrils, and I knew I was in a world of trouble. Some gigantic rotating disc had been placed under my feet, and it was spinning me around so that everything was a blur. The cruiser, the cruiser I had just waved at, was disappearing on the port, then at the bow, next at the starboard side, later astern, and it came back around to the port side again, then disappeared. The sea was splashing, coming at me from all sides, yet I tried to get up on my knees, strained with an exploding stomach full of lead to lift my legs to a kneeling position, grabbed the rigging tighter, hoping it would apply the brakes to this runaway disc. When I got to my knees, I dared to look up, saw the clouds hurtling around, coming together, falling toward me, separating and forming again, and I couldn't stomach it. Brought my eyes down, but now the horizon itself was turning upside down. Everything was in reverse, upside down, going wrong. 
I, dethroned but determined second skipper, kept my eyes on my sneakers as I pulled myself up from my knees, and out of courage and fear, tottering like a table minus two legs, strove to look astern. And there were Mother and Carl at the helm. Their mouths were wide, forming admonitions and advice. Their arms and fingers were gesturing, waving, and I felt like a violinist following conflicting directions from two conductors. Allegro, a Dante. Felt like a runner far away on second base receiving signals from two of my little league coaches on first. Steal, hit and run, sacrifice. The smell, that awful nastiness of a sea skull, inundated my nostrils. The taste, that brackish, briny and sour urination from the skies, splashed on my tongue, lips, and in my eyes. Like a TKO'd boxer, I held on to the ropes, the rigging, must have been glassy-eyed, stepped like a toddler on a tightrope toward the bow. Then, feeling and surging forward, feeling the load from my stomach push its way toward my mouth, I leaned over the grab rail, and my mouth became a passageway for the regurgitated cargo from my stomach, blowing lunch. Again I tried, placed and lifted my feet as if walking were a new experience, tried for the forward hatch. I got within a few feet of the hatch and just fell toward it, crawled down the ladder and flopped on the bunk. From my porthole I could see that the horizon had moved back to its normal horizontal position. My dizziness had stopped and I was off that demented spinning disc. Mitchell! I heard Mother's call, heard her unsteady progress from aft, and lying on my back I could see her, shoulder bent low as her hair missed the overhead by inches, moving toward me. She put her hand on my stomach. Are you all right? You got seasick, didn't you, baby? I just groaned, tossed my head back and forth, lifted up my knees. Mommy's sorry, Mitchell. She lost control of the boat for a while. Next, the soft, long fingers on my forehead. Feel better, honey? Can you last the rest of the day? I nodded, knowing we couldn't turn back then and trying to spur my courage to hold me for the day. She finally coaxed me off the bunk and through the boat. She held, led me with one hand as the two of us stumbled, going aft over the unsteady floorboards toward the cockpit. Carl was grinning at the helm. <laughs> Seasick, huh? What kind of sea legs were you walking on, huh, kid? We haven't even rocked much yet. When I was your age, lifting off his cap with a free hand, throwing back his hair, I could sail all by myself. No help. Now, if autobiographical writing is the true telling of an author's experiences by the person himself, this scene in no way qualifies as autobiographical fiction. It is essentially like thousands of scenes written by thousands of other first novelists, an extension of the writer himself into a scene. He imagines himself there and simply goes on to describe the action. Try to understand the phenomenon. He is there but isn't really. He feels but again not actually. The scene itself is sparked, however, by a true experience. Aha, says the critic, it is an autobiographical moment. Now again. Three summers ago, my wife and I, sitting in a restaurant in Maine, were invited by a, an elderly gentleman to go sailing. The details of that nautical outing have its place in the scene, but the central moment, the seasickness, is entirely made up. Another scene in my Maine mother that might be mistaken as fictionalized autobiography is the Pumpkin Festival. 
I have never been to a pumpkin festival, but was attracted by the fictional prospects of such a scene when I read about an Ohio festival in the Sunday travel section of the New York Times. Again, the writer places himself in an imagined situation. <clears throat> the whole street smelled like pumpkin pie, and the Chatsworth people were acting as if they had snakes in their boots. Pumpkins, some weighing 278 and a quarter pounds, were piled up on the sidewalks on buck wagons in the middle of Atlantic Avenue, lined up and piled everywhere. The pennants and signs were streaming from the telephone wires. Flyers were tacked on the telephone poles. Notices were propped up in the windows of the Rexall Drugstore, the Kresge Five and Dime, Sarah's Soda Pop Store, even Pep Boy's Hardware Store. The biggest pennant, made from someone's torn bedsheet, was strung from a telephone pole to a light pole. It spanned the whole street reading, 15th Annual Chatsworth Pumpkin Festival, and kept turning over from the wind, and there were red, white, and blue streamers stuck on the pumpkins. Uncle and I stopped in front of Sadie Lawson's street-side stand. Melvin, Melvin, you better come over here, child, and get some of these concoctions before I run out, she said, apron already spotted and splashed with pumpkins so early in the morning. You know the white folks love my cooking, and they'll buy me out before our people can get their pocketbooks together. Where you been keeping yourself, anyway? They'll never come over across the tracks anymore, staying cooped up in the woods. What do you have, Sadie? Asked Uncle, shaved and face smooth from being smacked with alcohol. He spread out his legs, pulled on the straps of his blue denim coveralls. Melvin, you know better than to ask, laughing, the barrettes in her hair, silver hair, glinting in the sunlight, fat sides shaking under her apron. This old Negro woman cook was laughing and bending down, looking under her stand now, reaching down. I've got so much it all can't go on the table. Here, try this, pumpkin fudge. Pumpkin fudge? You ain't seen nothing yet, reaching again. How about pumpkin marmalade or pumpkin preserves? Then throwing off the white table covering and exposing everything. I've got, if you want something hot, pumpkin burgers, pumpkin soup, pumpkin stew, and pumpkin hash. Over on the edge of the table here, I got cold things. Pumpkin ice cream, pumpkin custard, pumpkin pudding, pumpkin jello. I don't see nothing I like yet, really said Uncle, scratching for a beard that wasn't there. Well, how about some pumpkin cake, see here? Or maybe you, you'll like pumpkin cookies, pumpkin donuts, or pumpkin bread. Do you have any pumpkin pie, Sadie? I, I think I'd like a pie. Uncle took the pie, we moved farther up the street. The high school marching band, dressed in gray and blue, was parading down the street as if they had been scattered apart by a cannon because of the pumpkins everywhere. The drum major was leading a sinuous course around, between, over, and across the pumpkins lying in his path. They were all out of step, all out of tune, stepping on pumpkins and losing their balance, the tuba player almost falling and taking that loss of footing as a warning to walk ever so slowly, falling way behind the rest of the band, so far that his blowing was like a faraway owl's hooting. The trumpets were on one side of the street on the sidewalk. The drummer was trying to keep his footing on the other his rolls more like scattered beats. But they, the people of Chatsworth, didn't care. They, bitten by some pumpkinitis bug, acting mad as pink spiders, waved their streamers in the air, yelled, clapped for the dispersed Chatsworth High School marching band. That's some band, huh, Melvin? Listen to that music. 
What is it, Stars and Stripes Forever? It was a neighbor we hadn't seen since the last festival. How you been, anyway? Getting ready for the deer season? Uncle. Yeah, I guess I'll do some shooting. How you been making out, Will? We had started up again. We're taking a side street, and Will stayed with us. Not bad. You seen my Sally's pumpkin pie yet? It won the prize, you know. Come on, I'll show you. Pushing Uncle around another corner. It was sitting atop a 12-foot wooden judge's stand with a red ribbon hanging from a wire pen, another pen holding a sign, first prize. Uncle and I had to bend back our necks. Then we had to step back one, two paces in order to get a full view. It's 290 pounds, and it took six and a half hours for her to bake, Melvin. She used 125 pounds of milk and water and 36 pounds, five ounces of pie dough. How do you like it? Big, huh? Say, are you going to be in the pie-eating contest? Silence. Uncle, jingling change in his coveralls, licking and then sticking up a forefinger to test the wind. Popcorns, noisemakers, and horns were going off in the background on Atlantic Avenue, and the gigantic yellow pumpkin smelled like a squash farm, and Will was leaning over to an uncle. He was looking my uncle straight in the eyes and kicking dust up while some strains from a fiddle broke the silence and we knew the square dancing had started. All this hesitating while I, holding the tin pie plate in one hand, pinched my nostrils for fear of suffocating from the odor of so much pumpkin. Uncle drew in a deep breath. Melvin, are you going to be in the pie-eating contest? I am. I didn't eat dinner last night and haven't had breakfast. I knew Uncle was considering the prospects for failure was considering the uncountably preposterous contingencies that only someone with his outlandish penchant for the unexpected would fear. I knew his imagination brought up these eventualities, having his nose pushed into the middle of a pie, eating a pie that had turned rotten, choking on the pieces, and countless kinds of weird phenomena that would stand in the way of victory. No, I think Mitchell and I will mosey on over to the auction. I don't feel like eating too much today stomach acting up. So we passed more piles of pumpkins, passed a group gathered around in the pumpkin lifting contest, struggling to raise up a pumpkin that had the number 235 painted on it. We marched down the side street, passing the baton twirlers contest and started into an open field beyond which you could see almost to the mountains in New Hampshire. It was mud now and our feet sank into it as if we were trudging through soft clay. We saw the Barker standing on the tent stage, Chatsworth residents restless shifting their positions in the high weeds. We moved into the thick of the crowd. Uncle nodded, waved at acquaintances. I still had the pie. The final scene I want to read to buttress my contention that the first person, first novels, should be read with the same quest for imaginative brilliance, with the same standards applied to first-person narratives of more experienced authors, is from Chapter 16. Mitchell Mibbs visits his dying uncle in a cancer ward of a hospital. Almost all of the details come from an article about the pitfalls of smoking in Reader's Digest, but I'm positive future critics and readers will draw a correlation between this scene and my own father's dying of cancer. Actually, this scene was written before my father was stricken, and I will read it until time runs out. In here, please, Mr. Mibbs. Six men in beds. 
They all looked at me. I saw Uncle in the middle of them. I walked over to him. If he hadn't been the only black face in the ward, I would have had to ask Uncle. His face had gone sallow, his hair all white. He tried to lift his arm but couldn't. What is it, Uncle? How are you, son? How's school? Fine. Don't worry about Jeff. Mrs. Dixby is taking care of him. A slow and strained whispering through trembling lips. And Uncle used to be so virile, swinging me in the air and carrying me on his shoulders. Don't talk about me, Uncle. I'm fine. What's wrong? Does it hurt? Is there any pain, Uncle? They think it's cancer. I've had trouble swallowing, and it hurts here, touching his chest, and here, pointing to his throat. They may have to operate, Mitch. The other people in this room can't talk. Their vocal cords have been plucked out like you draw the innards from a frying chicken. Have they been treating you all right? I met Mother and Julius. Nothing but pain. Haven't had a good night's sleep in months. I'm so glad to see you. You don't know. Frowning, jerking a hand and drawing in his breath. Excuse me, the pain comes like that. Last week they stuck some kind of bronco tube down my throat. It was like a long steel pencil and they pushed it all the way down to my stomach, seems like, until I couldn't breathe. I turned my head, took a deep breath, but there was no stopping my heart, pumping so fast my temples throbbed. What to say to that? The food is good, though, and they treat me better than those two at home. One night I was screaming out in pain and trembling, and they locked me in the closet for a half hour because they couldn't sleep. And I took care of your mother since she was a little girl. I used to take her to the circus, Mitchell. I changed her diapers, but she made Julius lock me in the closet. I never did anything to Pearl. I love her. That's more than I can say, <clears throat> clearing my throat. Now, Mitchell, remember... Judge not, lest ye be judged. But I had some biblical phrases to throw at him if I cared to, like Lex Talianus. I made plans to have the insurance man come in the first thing next week. I'm making you the beneficiary so you can finish your schooling, and I want you to have the car and the house and the dogs. The car has been sitting there since Julius cracked it up last year. I haven't been able to do any work at all on it. There's some savings bonds and money I have hidden in my room under the mattress. You get them before Pearl does. But, Uncle, you have to hold on. You can make it, champ. You have to be the champion, remember? Hunting season's coming up, arm wrestling, drinking wine at Tony's. Tony's dead. Had a stroke. That's why I took Jeff to Dixby's. That old white conjure, Tony, one of my best buddies. Heart attack. And I'm next to go. I had some poison in the box where the records are in the attic. In case the pain got too much, I was going to put it in my wine. I saw the nurses come in for dinner. They asked me to leave because they had to feed the other patients with tubes and the men would become embarrassed at an outsider's watching. I could go to the solarium until dinner was over. Why do you have my uncle in here, I asked. We, he can eat from a plate by himself. The nurse smoothed out her starched apron and looked, locked her eyes to mine, testing my reaction. Acclamation, she said. We want him to see how easy it is to be fed from a tube. Again, my heart racing. My eyes cruised away and swelled. I hustled out. And why did she send me to the solarium? Testing my reaction again? Trying to overwhelm me with terror or trying to cultivate a courage already flickering like a candle flame on its way out? 
perhaps searching for a participant upon whom she could thrust if just momentarily a share of her ever-ready, everyday experience. My hand was on the door. The first man I saw didn't have a nose. The second was minus an ear. The third lacked a tongue. They were reading in wheelchairs. The sun had been long gone. The music was soft. Come on in, we're just trying to get the last bit of sun, said one, churning his wheels toward the door, his magazine thrown down on the floor, and smiling. The others looked up, threw down their mags, and raced over to me, three of them staring at me who couldn't look at them, one smiling without a tongue, be deformed but glad to be alive, staring at me. Maybe I'll come back, I said, turning. I thought my uncle was in here. In the hallway, I pushed my back against the wall to steady myself. I stood there for an entire half hour waiting for the end of dinner. I saw the nurse come out of uncle's ward and scuttle down the hall toward me. Her arms were swinging and her little feet were kicking and she was looking downward as she pulled up and stopped in front of me. You can go back in now, Mr. Mibbs. Why are you standing against the wall? Nodding at a passing nurse. You may have noticed some amazing features on the faces in there. No need to be alarmed. We grow pedicles from other parts of their bodies to replace the missing features which were removed to get at the cancers. If you go into Ward 12, pointing down the hall, you will. I don't think I want to see any more, I said, almost gasping, but insistent, hands on hips. You will see, Mr. Mibbs, examples of the remarkable strides surgery has made in the past few years. For instance, in Ward 12, some of the pedicles, pieces of flesh, if you will, are almost two feet long. We have one patient growing flesh from his shoulder to his neck. Remarkable. Dr. Farley is performing most of these operations, and he's certainly doing some beautiful work. What he'll do is cut off the flesh and shape it into a nose or ear or what have you. Beautiful work. Did you see the old Jewish fellow with a pedicle growing from his throat to his abdomen yet? He walks through this hall quite frequently. Will you have to do this to my uncle? My voice faltered. Oh, we can't tell, sir. I think doctor will start by, and the operation is next week, you know, by removing his larynx and pharynx and part of the esophagus and maybe some other eyes and ends and maybe... Thank you, I said, moving around her and thumping, heels breaking the silence in the hall, walked back to uncle's ward.